Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Beside the warm, sandy shores of the Red Sea in Egypt, there are heated conversations underway about the future of the planet. COP27 has thrown politicians, activists, diplomats, and business representatives into close company. And from that mix have emerged fresh messages urging corporations, banks, and governments to shrink fossil fuel exploration and use. There's talk of a treaty, of regulations to force a change of ways. And a former Canadian environment minister is at the heart of the discussions. We'll talk to her. These meetings coincide with the first anniversary of one of Canada's worst climate-related disasters, last year's atmospheric river that drowned BC in destruction, death, and despair. We have a documentary on what lessons have and haven't been learned as people still struggle to recover. Anne Crossan was young, in love, and newly married when she and her husband ventured to Mount Robson on their honeymoon more than six decades ago. She shares her memories and her hopes for the future of the warming earth. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Now, there are some at the UN Climate Talks looking for a way to make history repeat itself. Sort of. It was more than 50 years ago that the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty entered into force, aiming for a reduction in nuclear arsenals. Now there's a push for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty to phase out oil, gas and coal. The island nation of Tuvalu is using the COP27 meetings to urge others to sign on. Samoan climate activist Brianna Fruin says Pacific Islanders are demonstrating true climate leadership. We are currently on track to hit three degrees of warming, and that may sound like only a number to some, but to us it sounds like more homes being swept away by flooding, more graves being swept away by rising sea, more crops being lost to drought, and more families separated due to forced migration. More fossil fuel extraction means more loss and damage experienced by our island homes. A COP that does not address fossil fuels is a COP that does not address the root cause of the climate crisis, and a COP that is complicit in the devastation of my people. Sitting alongside Fruin at COP27, Julia Levin with Environmental Defence Canada urged support for the treaty to ensure net zero emissions. The new guidelines from the UN are clear. Net zero means we must keep oil, gas and coal in the ground. That means ending the exploration, expansion and production of fossil fuels, including fossil gas and LNG exports, without limitations or loopholes. Net zero promises that fail to live up to these new standards should be dismissed as greenwashing. Oil and gas companies will fight these recommendations. They'll say that by relying on risky and expensive techno fixes like carbon capture and storage, we can keep digging up fossil fuels. Now, we'll come back to that and the perspective of the fossil fuel industry a little later on. But first, let's talk money. 
The big dollars earned by oil and gas this year due to fuel shortages caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine aren't escaping the attention of world leaders. The Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, used her moment in the global spotlight at COP27 to almost shame the corporations into contributing to funds to help countries like hers. The oil and gas companies and those who facilitate them need to be brought into a special convocation between now and COP28. How do companies make $200 billion in profits in the last three months and not expect to contribute at least 10 cents in every dollar of profit to a loss and damage fund? This is what our people expect. It's all an indication of the growing international pressure on the fossil fuel sector. And that includes the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. His sharp words at COP are a shot across the bow of both the oil and gas corporations and others, such as banks, that support them. And let's tell it like it is. Using Bogle's net zero pledges to cover up massive fossil fuel expansion is reprehensible. It is rank deception. This toxic cover-up could push our world over the climate cliff. The sham must end. Guterres is endorsing a new report issued by a panel he appointed to dig into what he's calling a sham. Catherine McKenna leads that panel. The report urges an end to corporate net-zero pledges that amount to greenwashing. McKenna is a former Canadian Minister of Environment and Climate Change, and we spoke to her as she was preparing to leave COP27 after presenting the report. I started by asking her what net zero really means, given that it's now used so widely by governments and corporations. Well, I mean, what net zero means, first of all, it's like global net zero. The world, the science shows that the world needs to be net zero by 2050. Um, What does it mean? I mean, in the case of what we were doing, which is these net zero pledges where businesses or, or financial institutions, banks, um, insurance companies, uh, cities and regions put up their hand and they say, we're going to be net zero. I think what most people think it means is you're going to be drastically reducing your emissions um, and you're going to be investing money for to clean and clean innovation. And uh, that has to be done. I mean, they say net zero by 2050, but, you know, as soon as possible that you're doing that, but certainly starting right away. But the problem is that, as far as your report says, is that it's become kind of meaningless in the hands of many private uh, sector actors. Well, I mean, the reality is actually we know that there is a lot of noncompliance, but it's even hard to track exactly how folks are doing because they aren't reporting transparently. Um, And there isn't a standardized way to report. But we certainly know um, there are these trackers that look at commitments that a lot of the commitments just have a long-term goal of 2050. And so it's actually a moment in time for net zero because if you're, it either drives action right now and helps the world get to where we need to be by folks really focusing hard and doing the work and reducing their emissions, or it actually hides or, you know, allows greenwashing for, by focusing on 2050. Because we certainly know CEOs are going to be here in 2030, let alone 2050. And so you can say, hey, guys, look at what I'm going to do and be, um, but not be taking any action. And I saw, look, when I was a minister, it's really easy to set a target. Um, It's really hard to deliver on the target and show that you're reducing your emissions and have a plan 
and be diligent on the plan. And so, I mean, the whole intention of this report was actually just be really clear on what is required and what isn't allowed. Your your report suggests any new fossil fuel projects are actually incompatible with net zero. Why? Well, because the science says you can't have new fossil fuel supply. Um, That's the science from the IPCC. Um, Also, the International Energy Agency modeling shows that as well. And, And the reality is there's huge opportunities to move to renewable energy. I mean, obviously, we're it's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. But it's certainly not going to happen if we continue with new fossil fuel supply. And remember that these are commitments that are made by folks that are putting up their hands. They're saying, hey, guess what? I'm going to be net zero. I'm a climate leader. And I think if you walk down the street and you ask anyone, do you think if someone says they're a climate leader and they are building or investing in new fossil fuel supply that folks would think that that was right? So some of it is actually just common sense. I just want to ask you, the Royal Bank of Canada recently released its own net zero plan, but it's aiming at reducing emissions intensity. What do you think of that, of what it's proposing? Well, I mean, look, our report is very clear, so I'm not going to talk about any particular um, company or financial institution, but our report is clear uh, that you can, well, intensity might be an important measure, that you have to reduce your absolute emissions. The planet doesn't care about intensity. The planet cares about emission reduction. And that is actually what's required by the, the standard setters that are out right now. Also, you need to cover all your emissions. So, you know, you often see companies saying, oh, we're driving down emissions, but they're not doing all of their emissions. And that includes the emissions through their supply chain. And so we've been also very clear that you need to cover all your emissions. You also can't just use cheap credits, which often don't have integrity, so that you're buying what are called offsets instead of doing the work yourself to reduce emissions. So, I mean, I think there are things like I, I tried with the really awesome members of our expert group who were you had a CEO, scientist, environmentalist, former regulator, former head of state, um, me, a recovering politician. <laughs> um, we tried really hard to be practical because I think what is required is not, you know, people sort of being able to fudge things, like just saying, okay, look, let's just, this is what you got to show. And I think then you're, you can be measured by that. But right now, it is actually very hard to even get the information and data. And so one of the recommendations we have is that we create a, that the UN um, work with others to create a data portal so that you would be able to go on if you're a regular person or if you're, say, you're, you want to invest in a company and you can go and see how that company is really doing. Like clear metrics, are they reducing their, well, what's their baseline? Are they reducing their emissions? Are they covering all their emissions? What are they doing on credits? Are they just buying credits instead of actually reducing their own emissions? So I think it's just a very practical thing that we, things that we need to do to just ensure accountability. I also want to try asking you about the oil sands in Alberta. I mean, the, the, the companies that are working in that area, they're, they're planning to ramp up production even as they promise to cut emissions to get to net zero by using things like carbon capture. What, what is your view on that from the perspective of, of the work that you've been doing? Uh, look, I mean, you know, what you need to do, and I think this is really important, is you need to start reducing emissions now. That's what you're required to do. You need to show how your emissions are going down. Um, you need to show your investments, how your investments are flowing to clean. And, you know, look, in terms of the fossil fuel companies, 
one of the things that is, I think, quite disappointing is that they are making historic profits off of an illegal war. And instead of taking, you know, significant part of those profits and reinvesting them to move to clean right now, um, they're doing, you know, giving the money back, you know, they're doing share buybacks and they're, um, uh, they're giving, you know, large executive compensation and then asking the government <laughs> to give them more subsidies if they're going to actually reduce emissions using technology that is not available right now. And so I think it's just time, and this is what the Secretary General said. I mean, he says it in very stark terms. Um, uh, I think he said we need, don't need slow movers, fake movers, or greenwashers. Um, you have to be accountable for what you say. And to put it in the terms like, you know, when I say to my kids, like, you're not going to get an A for showing up. You're going to get an A because you did the work. <laughs> and that's what should be expected if you are saying, you know, you're going to be net zero, you're a climate leader. You were talked earlier about what it was like for you when you were in cabinet. I'm just wondering, um, another uh, distinction you make in the report is that they make these targets and then oil and gas companies can come and lobby government to undermine things. Is that something that you experienced when you were a cabinet minister? I mean, look, there's tons of lobbying going on. Um, and, you know, whether it's directly done um, by a company or by it's done by their trade association. And, I mean, in a way, what is inconsistent is that you should want ambitious climate policy because often companies say to us, well, it's up to governments to act. They need to create the regulations that enable this. Otherwise, you know, we can't do it on our own. But <laughs> at the same time, you're coming in and saying, well, you can't do this because this is terrible. I don't mean you can't come in and say, well, you could improve this policy here or there. That's fine. But actually saying, like, trying to kill particular policies that actually would enable more ambitious climate action. It's a huge problem. Um, it, I, I, I will say, because I think we have to be positive about something. So when I was Minister of Environment and Climate Change, the hardest thing I knew we would have to do was bring in price on pollution across the country. And I had the support of environmentalists, which was good, but I needed broader support. And so I created the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition, and we got businesses together. We had um, the consumer goods companies. We had banks. We even had one oil and gas company who said, yeah, we need to put a price on pollution. And that's what we should all be aiming for. We need governments to be working with businesses uh, and as well as cities and regions. And they're really awesome cities and regions. If you think about the price on pollution, we were lucky because four provinces were already pricing pollution. Sadly, they some of them got governments that went, then went in the other direction. But, um, you know, it really matters because it actually means we can be way more ambitious as opposed to less ambitious. Your, the report has the imprimatur of the United Nations on it. It's endorsed by the Secretary General, but at the end of the day, it's not binding on anyone. Yet you recommend that companies shift from voluntary net zero initiatives to regulation at a national level. I'm wondering how you expect private industry to respond to that idea. Well, I mean, look, if you're, if you're someone who says you're, you're, you know, you're going to be net zero, you should want regulation because some of your competitors haven't said that. Um, and it's about a level playing field. But, I mean, the, part of the reason, you, of course, you need, you need regulation or laws is so you can hold folks accountable. Um, and, and this isn't pie in the sky. Europe is moving to regulation, so large companies will have to have a net zero target. They'll have to have a transition plan, like show how they're going to get there. 
Um, and then they're going to have to disclose publicly. The U.K. has said this as well. Um, so there's movement. And I have to give Mark Carney huge credit because he created something called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And this was about financial institutions disclosing the risk. So, you know, how exposed are you? And that's that was – I remember people were kind of like, hmm, I'm not sure about that. Um, and now it's become law in many places. So these voluntary initiatives have a really important role short of regulation. Um, and But, you know, we do move, need to move to a place where it's very clear what's required. Government is uh, administering it. And it's and, it, and then everyone's part of it so that you can't just decide you're not going to opt in to these um, to be net zero. Last question. Uh, you are at the airport just getting ready to leave COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. I'm wondering what you've seen there that gives you hope for an actual net zero future. Actually, to be honest, the list of businesses that uh, I spoke with and cities and regions, but we need to, and environmentalists and climate leaders and people who want to see real action, I think they were pretty happy with the report. Um, and also, we've reached out to some regulators, and there there's interest. And so, look, I I mean, I hope that you know that you, uh, the secretary general has moral suasion um, that he you know is able to now push for this to happen. And there's a lot of other initiatives that are out there that will you know that will hopefully you know and bring in these criteria or. Uh, enhance their criteria. I mean, I certainly hope that Canadian businesses um, look at them very closely, and if they're not zero recognized, this is what's expected for them. Um, but then again, I mean, governments need to step up. I think that they need to really make that laws requiring this will really drive this change. And gosh, we need it. <laughs> I, I put in my report, you know, you're always trying to figure out, okay, how do I say something meaningful at the end uh, of my chair's statement? And I was like, you know, a lot of people are naysayers or they just are pessimistic. And I was thinking about being a competitive swimmer. Like, we always set ambitious targets. You never wanted to be average. You would set an ambitious goal. And that would be a long-term goal. It might be a few years out. And you would, uh, I mean, that was in a way kind of the easy part. And then every day you had to go hard and, and do the work and put your head down. Um, and then in the end, you strive for the finish. So that's what we all need to do. Um, and the good news is we have the ingenuity, uh, we have much of the innovation, we have money. Uh, well, certainly the major companies have money. Uh, and so that we need to just make that move because the costs are too great. And in the end, the reason I do this, I got out of politics. I said I only want to focus on climate change and hanging out with my kids. And that I'm living up to it because I just really believe that we don't have a choice. We've got to act now. We've got to do it with rigor and discipline and all be held accountable. Catherine McKenna, thank you so much for your time. Always great. Thanks. Now, as I mentioned, Canada's oil and gas industries have their own views, and we tried to interview them. Pathways Alliance, representing oil sands companies, initially agreed, then cancelled. The Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, or CAP as it's known, declined our request. Both sent us written statements. Pathways Alliance says it's in Sharm el-Sheikh showcasing its plans for carbon capture and storage in Alberta, part of its plan to get to net zero by 2050. We asked CAP about the call for fossil fuel companies to compensate vulnerable nations 
with part of the billions they've made this year. It notes its members are paying increased royalties to governments, and governments can decide what's best to do with the funds. CAP also says, quote, the world needs more Canadian energy to replace reliance on Russian oil and gas. Hello. Hello, Anne. Yes. Hi, it's Laura Lynch calling from CBC in Vancouver. Hello, Laura. I am so glad to hear your voice. I enjoy your program so much. Well, that's lovely to hear, and I know that you... Anne Crossan is a listener and I guess a fan who emailed us after she heard our story about severe flooding in Mount Robson Provincial Park. During the BC heat dome last year, water from melting glaciers gushed down the mountain, destroying trails and campgrounds. Mount Robson is just one of many wild, beautiful places in this country that are being touched by climate change. And these places mean so much to so many people. Anne visited Mount Robson on her honeymoon 65 years ago. Although she's lost most of her eyesight now, she has a clear vision of sitting on a pair of boulders beside a river with her late husband, Alan. It was wonderful. Right ahead of us, there was the mountain with its gleaming peak and the river rushing by. Now, we had been told that the peak was rarely totally uncovered. And even if it wasn't totally obliterated, there would be clouds around the peak. But that day, it was a beautiful sunny day. The sky was as clear as it could be, not a cloud in sight. So all the time we sat there, it was totally uncovered. And the sun shining on the glacier, it was just breathtaking. And... I had the love of my life sitting at my side, and I thought, I'm in love with that mountain. More than your husband? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the mountain actually probably had to take second place. (laughs) Of course. But I had room for two. (laughs) (laughs) But it sounds just so magical and romantic. Well, it was wonderful, and as we went down, every little while I'd turn around and look back, and he said, he wanted to know, is there something the matter? And I said, no, I just want another look at the mountain. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) We we lived on that day for, I think, all our married life. (laughs) Anyway, but at the end of your program, My joy was rather dimmed because the description of the mountain today I found very disturbing. And I thought, it it can't happen. It just can't. What's happening? And then when the reporter described the front of the glacier just melting away before her eyes with bubbles of water coming up just before her eyes. I thought, the mountain is weeping. Weeping? It's weeping. The mountain is weeping for what we have allowed to happen to our environment, and it was heartbreaking. And when, when 
when the, the program was finished, I thought, I'm weeping with oh, the mouth. Man, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but... No, I'm not. You don't need to be sorry. I think that's what everybody should be doing, is weeping for what's happening. Well, you, yeah, you've been around a while. You're 87 years old now. So when it comes to climate change, I'm wondering how you've seen things change over your lifetime. I have a farm. So I follow the weather very closely because in the spring, you know, is the snow going to be gone, the frost out, and is the moisture level going to be good, or is it so dry, or and then the seeding, is it going to be done in time, and is the crops going to be good? There's always cycles. We have wet cycles. We have dry cycles. So these kinds of things happen, but I think they're closer together mm-hmm. now, and they seem to be more intense. I think you're right about that, and I'm wondering... Um, given all of your experience, um, I'm wondering what your advice would be to others who are observing things changing around them because of the climate. Well, you have to accept there's going to be changes. But if I really do believe if everyone did something to change their lifestyle, it would make a difference. And I just want to ask you, I mean, Alan, your your husband, he died almost three years ago now, and I'm sorry for your loss, but I, I'm wondering if that makes the memories of what Mount Robson was that much more precious for you. You'll have me weeping. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't need to be sorry. <laughs> it's life. I, I, I wonder, though, after all of the memories that this story about Mount Robson provoked, I wonder if you could imagine for me what Alan would be thinking if he knew what had happened to that mountain where you had your honeymoon. Well, he was a very calm person, but he would be upset. He would be writing letters to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Your program is the first one that I've ever actually attempted to make a phone call or write a letter or whatever. (laughs) It's never too late to start, Anne, and I I am so glad that you did take the time and and that you've talked to me now and shared all of these memories. It's it's so valuable to hear your point of view. So thanks so much, Anne Crossan. Bye. Thank you. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on. Which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. A year ago, a rainstorm hit BC, but rainstorm is an understatement. The torrent of water triggered floods, landslides and destruction, killing five people and more than 600,000 farm animals. And according to Environment and Climate Change Canada research scientist Nathan Gillett, The event had all the hallmarks of climate change. 
in general terms, we saw it, uh, that human-induced climate change had increased the risk of the, the atmospheric river event itself, of the rainfall, uh, the heavy rainfall associated with it, and of the flooding and high stream flow. One year on, the memories haunt so many who lived through it. Jody Martinson's documentary tells some of their stories and of the hopes others have that hard lessons learned will prevent more tragedy in the future. It was a Tuesday morning in November 2021. Search and Rescue knocked on Doug Casper's door and said, it's time to go. Doug owns a development company that builds seniors' care homes. He happened to have an excavator and a dump trailer at home that day. The access road to his home was already washed out, so he and the neighbours got to work. We were able to put an excavator on top of the dike and actually construct a temporary road. We'll ask for forgiveness later if uh, they say we weren't allowed to do that. Two days earlier, Abbotsford and 19 other BC communities had set brand new records for the most rain to ever fall in a single day. Doug got his family out to safety, and then he returned home to move what he could upstairs. When I did come back, I didn't see any activity whatsoever. It was just like a a calm, like the big storm passed. I saw a rainbow out the back door, and I thought, that's kind of cool. Yeah, because are you Christian? Yes. So, yeah. did, so the rainbow had a symbol to you? Very much it did, yeah. The world is not going to flood again is what the rainbow is symbolic for, uh, mentioned in the Bible. So that was a, an eye-opener to go, yeah, we're going to do well here. Doug texted his neighbors. Like, where are you? Like, what's going on? I said, and the re- response I got was, hey, do you got your dump trailer at home? We need it over here now. <laughs> Doug's neighbors, three guys, were at the Barrowtown pump station, just four doors down. For a hundred years, that pump station and the one before it have hummed away, steadily draining water from the area. It's an engineering feat which has made this region the heart of BC's farming industry. Without the pump station, the fertile farmland of Abbotsford and all the homes there would be in a lake. Now, staff there needed help the pump station was at risk. I've never walked into the pump station prior to this point, ever. We drive by it all the time. And the water is coming through cracks in the building and through little holes. It's coming over the floor and dripping in. And the basement is starting to fill where there's electric circuitry. And they're saying it's important we keep this place pumped out. The worker at the pump directed Doug and his neighbours to pull small emergency pumps off shelves and set them up to suck water out of the basement. The goal was to stop the water from rising so high inside that they'd have to turn off the electricity. What do you have to help us with this? And what can we do with that? And so we'd pull our heads together and say, we'll take this part of it, you guys worry about the other ends. According to the city of Abbotsford, if the pump station got swamped, there would be about 10 feet of water over the Trans-Canada and surrounding farms. And that water would be stuck there for a year. So when you're down there and all these streams of water are just coming and sifting, all you hear is water trickling around you, it's a little bit like you're in a war zone and uh, we've got to get this pump running now. Such critical infrastructure proving so vulnerable. And four guys who happen to live nearby suddenly protecting an entire region of a city of 150,000 and a major highway. How did it come to this? 
The heat dome baking BC has already set temperature records and forecasters expect today could be even hotter. Yesterday, To understand the catastrophic wetness of last November, you need to understand the extraordinary dryness of the summer. In June, BC was covered by a heat dome. Temperature records were smashed and over 600 people died. That led to BC's third worst wildfire season on record in terms of area burned. And it took out forests in a couple key river basins. Without trees, there were no leaves and branches to hold water off the ground. No healthy root systems to hold soggy soil in place. And the fires set off a chemical reaction in the soil, creating a coating over it, almost like wax. Add a layer of ash on top, and you have the makings of ideal conditions for water to cascade off mountain slopes and into rivers, and sometimes for land to slide. So by November, that was all important context when mega amounts of rain started to pour. On November 14th, a Sunday, Tamsin Lyle noticed the intensity of the storm when she drove out to the Fraser Valley to pick up her daughter from Girl Guide Camp. She was soaked, and it was like really, really, really soaked. You know, these are hardy kids, but this was extreme for them to have camped overnight in this weather. Tamsin wasn't just a concerned mother, though. She's a consultant who works with communities in flood zones. So she was keenly aware that the conditions were just right for trouble. The next day, she joined a Zoom call with clients in BC's Nicola Valley. And as we are presenting this on Zoom, in the background, we can see the Nicola River rising because modern-day Zoom, one of our people on the meeting happened to be at his home, which was in the background is the Nicola River. We ultimately cut that meeting short as evacuations were being called. Evacuations were being called. In Merritt, the city ordered people out when the sewage system failed. And how do you run a city when nobody can go to the bathroom? 258,000 hydro customers lost power. First Nations communities like the Nuaich Indian Band were left landlocked. By the time we got told to leave here, evacuate, the bridges were out. And we can't cook, we got no hot water, so it's pretty stressful. The highways failed in some 300 separate locations. The rail lines washed out completely, cutting off the port of Metro Vancouver. Walls of mud slid over the highways, stranding drivers overnight. You can see the waterfalls coming and this kind of it. Like, it sounds cliche, but I really thought, is this the day I'm done? <laughs> Trapped, hopeless, just get us out of here. Wish we could have found that missing person. The slides killed five people. There was a 61-year-old businessman and father. There was a rugby player from Calgary who had moved to BC for work. The parents of a two-year-old and a 36-year-old paramedic who managed to yell at his mom to get back in the car before the slide came down and buried him. So all of that was playing out on the highways and up in the mountains. But back downstream where the Trans-Canada dumps onto the plains of the Fraser River, flooding engineer Tamsin Lyle was worried about the Sumas Prairie. About two decades prior, the provincial government made dike maintenance a municipal responsibility. For many in cash-strapped cities, that was viewed as offloading a problem. And there was one dike of particular concern, 
the Sumas Lake Reclamation Dike. A 2015 report submitted to the provincial government rated it as unacceptable and fair to poor in terms of its height and overall condition. So, you know, one thing that I know about the Fraser Valley in particular is that we have a really strong reliance currently on structural infrastructure. So that's dikes and the pump stations. And that system is super fragile. And so I knew that there was all of these pieces that had to work perfectly in order to sort of maintain, you know, protection and quotation marks for the people in the Sumas Prairie. So that meant that the dikes had to work, the pump station had to work, and it's, you know, these are old pieces of infrastructure. What if the power line to the station went out? These are all things that could happen, right? So we've created this system that's reliant on this ultimately very fragile network of infrastructure. Tamsin pulled up satellite imagery that showed very clearly where the dikes were being tested. Water that had overflown the banks of the Nooksack River in Washington state was pooling up against the sides of the Sumas dike. And then at two different spots, the dike breached. If you just imagine as a kid, if you're playing in a sandbox and you build a pile of sand and you pour water on it, eventually it just collapses underneath its own weight. Or you have a scenario where you have a small hole through the dike. It's often beavers or other rats or whatever, you know, creatures of the river. Then as soon as you have one small hole, it eats away at the dike. The water flowed through the breaches in the dike directly toward about 1,000 homes and farms of the Sumas Prairie. But Tamsin doesn't call it a prairie. So that has relieved all the pressure on the west side of the dike and has started dropping water into the lake bottom or flooding the, out. The like, former lake, the, former lake. the place where everybody lives and farms now. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And you still refer to it as a lake? It, it was a lake for millennia, and it was only because of human intervention that it's not currently a lake, and I think it just reclaimed itself as a lake. A hundred years ago, in the 1920s, the Samath people were moved off the lake shores. The lake was drained using the Barrowtown pump station I told you about earlier, the one Doug Casper was working to save. And the land was sold to farmers. Here's Sumas First Nation chief Dalton Silver. It was something that, that our people never even would have thought of doing and, and altering nature in, in such a way. And uh, yeah, it, it pretty much took away our food source. So now, as news cameras showed up, it was dairy and poultry farmers, blueberry and corn farmers, who were paying the price for a decision to drain a lake 100 years ago. We're seeing waters rising in the barns and cows up to their bellies in water, if not worse. Thousands of cows locked in barns screaming. And crews need to get in. People need to get in to help. More than 600,000 animals died. The provincial government had to respond to the criticism that it should have given farmers more warning. Here's Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. The reality is, is that this uh, weather event was unprecedented. It was uh, beyond what any of us expected. And, you know, even the experts were, were, uh, were just completely surprised by it. So when you have a minister stand up and said, you know, no one saw this coming, you can say... Well, actually, yes, we saw this coming. Tamsin Lyle wasn't buying the line. Here's some links to, you know, three different reports that were submitted to your government in the last 
five years that said this was going to happen. And so they're trying to hold them to account so they couldn't, careful with language here, but I mean, <laughs> like weasel out of the situation by saying that, you know, this was an, you know, an act of God or a natural disaster, which is a term I absolutely abhor because it's a natural hazard, but the disaster is human made. Like it's the choices that we have made as humans that created all of that damage. Whether it was placing lots of people in what was once a lake, whether it's choosing to rely on structural infrastructure like dikes that we are then not maintaining. All of these things are choices that we as humans have made. And that's what's creating the disaster, not the floodwaters itself. And there was a part of me that said, you know, I told you so. Like, and it wasn't just I told you so, it was that we have been telling you so for a long time. But, you know, it's, it didn't feel good. It felt really horrible because, you know, it's just incredibly hard to see these people whose, you know, lives have been totally disrupted. Like, there's a lot of emotion there. Back in Abbotsford, Doug Casper continued to lead the charge, trying to prevent a complete shutdown of the Barrowtown pump station. At about midnight on Tuesday, they got a big boost. About 200 volunteers from neighboring Chilliwack showed up to help pile sandbags and fortify a barrier around the pump station. So we uh, got into a bit of a fireman's line where they were passing sandbags along, and we were very, very happy. I think we got back and said enough's enough at about 3.30 that morning, and then at 6 o'clock back at it and went out again. For days, Doug and his neighbors worked like that, jumping in when they could to help. There was one point we... We didn't know if you know how much were we losing by. I threw a roll of duct tape over to uh, one of our neighbors, Lee, and I said, "Wrap that duct tape around the pipe railing outside. That's the water level. We've got to keep our eye on that and just see: are we losing the race? Or are we actually making a difference here?" And then at that point, we could tell, "Okay, it's a, it's a slow rise. It's slowly rising," and that gave us the confidence that uh, we were making a difference with uh, the means and efforts that we were putting in place. As the days ticked by and the waters started to recede, BC began to confront the biggest question of all. Roads and railways were out, dikes were leaking, and a pump station had met its limit. Would we build back smarter for the climate of the future, or just build back? The highways really demonstrate that tension. With all passages east totally cut off, it was urgent to get things patched up and people and goods flowing again. But also really important to scrutinize every new project very carefully. Zane Sloan is an engineer who consults with the province. A bridge on the Coquihalla that fell apart is now being designed on climate projections to the end of the century because the bridge it's supposed to last for 75 years. That's, that's its design life. So they are building back better. And what we end up with is, in theory, resilient infrastructure. Resilient infrastructure, in theory. Okay, well, how confident am I? I, I am confident that we will be successful at providing more resilience in our infrastructure. However, nature does what nature does, and nature can get really big and throw some nasty problems at us. So to expect that we'll build and design things that will never fall apart again, that's unrealistic. In the meantime, there's a whole bunch of infrastructure in the province that's legacy infrastructure, and we're not going to get to it in time. So other parts will start to fall apart, 
and, and we'll have to go build those back better when the time comes. If we had trillions of dollars of budget, sure, we could get we could take care of it in advance, but we don't have trillions. Over on the Sumas Prairie floodplain, some parts of the dike were repaired and raised to be taller. But a comprehensive plan to avert disaster the next time rain falls like that is still in the works. We tend to have this small policy window, the small window of opportunity after a disaster event where big decisions can be made and changed. You heard the province say that they are going to change the overall model for flood governance in the province. And you heard the federal government say that they would provide money to recover and all of these things. But a year later, I would say that some of those big picture ideals are sort of still there in some sort of high level policy sort of direction, but really haven't seen on the ground the changes that need to be made in order to make us more resilient and recover faster from these events in future. A few months ago, the city of Abbotsford announced its proposal. It would like to reinforce Barrowtown Pump Station, build some new pump stations, create a floodway, and build new dikes. The cost? Almost $3 billion. Here's outgoing Mayor Henry Braun. Are the federal and provincial governments going to fund this? Because we're not going to spend millions and millions of dollars with consultants to put a plan together only to find out that, oops, uh, sorry, we don't have any money for you. One option that Mayor Braun doesn't like is forcing people who live on the former lake site to move out and allowing the lake to form again. I totally disagree with people who take that view. You're not just talking about uh, flooding out farming. Uh, 50%, 50% of all of the dairy, poultry, eggs, turkeys, chickens, you name it, that's consumed in the province of British Columbia comes from Abbotsford, 50%. Uh, You're talking about flooding Highway 1, the railways, Trans Mountain Pipeline, Fortis Gas, main power lines coming into Metro Vancouver. There's a reason why they're all on Sumas Prairie, because you've got Sumas Mountain on one side and Vetter Mountain on the other side in the U.S. border. The only place to put all of this tens of billions of dollars of infrastructure is in Sumas Prairie. But here's UBC Associate Professor Brett Gilley. He testified in front of a Senate committee looking into what the federal government should do. When you look at a place that is very prone to disasters, you want to think, do we want to rebuild it over and over and over? Or is it more efficient and uh, saves more money to actually move people out of the area? If we're going to do this, we don't want to do it maybe even for the whole prairie, maybe just look at parts of this. And I think the city of Abbotsford is looking at that for making floodways in order to protect the other parts of the prairie. Tamsin Lyle is also a strong supporter of moving some people out and giving at least some of Sumas Prairie back to the lake. The city of Abbotsford came out really fast with their solutions, their preferred option. And it was build more dikes, let's buckle down, let's put it in a bigger pump station. It's a very short-sighted choice that they have made. No matter you know, how hard I try and some of my colleagues try to like, move this ship and have this paradigm shift in terms of how we're thinking about flood and what we should be in disaster in general and climate change, we continue to band-aid this solution. Tamsin has begun meeting with a broad group of people to see what they can come up with as solutions. She started working with another leader in emergency preparedness. 
My name is Tyrone McNeil from Seabird Island. I'm President and Tribal Chief of the Stalo Tribal Council and Chair of the Emergency Planning Secretariat. Chief McNeil, or Ty as he says I should call him, started an NGO to help 31 different First Nations in flood zones prepare for emergencies. Major municipalities are struggling with flood preparedness, so no wonder small First Nations have decided they'll do better if they can pool their resources. We're, we're trying to bring people together and have these kinds of conversations because nobody else is. And well, who better to lead it than First Nations? Because we, we, we've got interest in the land like no others do. So you might buy a piece of property today and sell it tomorrow. But we tend not to do that. We're born here, we die here, the next generations are born. You know, we're, we're attached to the land. We're not going anywhere. So who better to look after it, particularly regionally, than us as Coast Salish people? Ty has a big problem with the Abbotsford plan. He says Sumas First Nation was clear. They don't have the capacity to comment on it, let alone participate. But provincial legislation, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, says they must be involved. When Sean, Sean Atlio was the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, one of his buzz lines, and he always put out there, you can do this the hard way or the harder way. So recognize it's not easy, but let's just get together and figure it out. That's really what it's about. And for example, it might be going into one of our communities and just asking the, the chiefs and councils, the, the members that are there, what do you need? What capacity support? What is your current capacity? What do you feel your capacity shortfalls are? So the, the polar opposite of, of where we've been historically, right? Tyrone is also looking for solutions beyond what's been tried in BC before. And there's a, a tiny little river in New Zealand that has a, a a fairly good-sized city right where the river drains into the ocean. And what the government did there was they bought up 5,500 houses because they got tired of going in there year after year because the houses are getting wet. But, but as soon as government bought out those houses and properties, there's no more flood issue because it, it allowed the river to grow in a way that didn't do harm to anybody. But they created more fish habitat. So when... Farmers, and I don't think it's so much if, when farmers are compelled to move out of the lake, we need to put in strategies and mechanisms where they're properly compensated, there's redress, and it's not done in panic. If a farmer with 200 acres wants to give up their land right now, well, let's recognize that. And then over time, we'll just keep on going until we've got a footprint big enough to, to keep everybody safe. Because keep in mind, when it's returned to a, a lake, there's a whole lot of folks downriver benefiting from that. Here's Doug Casper. Right now, I feel we are more vulnerable today than we were a year ago. Uh, and that, that's very unfortunate that we didn't move further this past year. Doug has watched the politics play out closely. And he has been recognized for what he did and even got a chance to meet the prime minister. But I had a hunch it was a bit of a mixed experience for him. Well, first, let me ask you, you... Um are you a Justin Trudeau fan? <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> uh, are we? <laughs> One of the people who helped save the pump made up T-shirts that say, Make Barrowtown Pump Station Great Again. But along the road to the pump station, the road that goes to Doug's house, it's still just a long row of big sandbags. There's engineering studies, there's been community groups, think forums put together to come up with great ideas, but we're just not seeing a plan being hatched to, to gain the funding and to put contracts in place and see uh, wheels in motion. It's, 
we're just not seeing it. Oh, why do you think we're not seeing that? It's been a year. Uh, we're on the West Coast, distance from the Brain Trust in Ottawa. There's a, a war going on in Ukraine. Uh, there's lots of other emergencies that are front and center. You know, we see when we drive along coast, we see tsunami uh, signage, you know, evacuation here. We don't have any of that in the Sumas Prairie of how do we get people out? Is it just by the neighbors clamoring together and, oh, I have a boat and I can all go get Sue from down the road and uh, make sure she's okay? Uh, the people I worked with in, in Ground Zero when the flood waters were rising, we were all saying we got PTSD, uh, you know, now the year's over and we're still, everybody's kind of a little bit affected by that. After things came back to normal, everybody had to hustle back and get their jobs going again. And uh, getting your head back in the game after that was uh, was a struggle. There was a, a dairy farmer that drove to the pump station the day after. His cows were standing in water in his barn. He wasn't able to evacuate them out in time. He wanted the real information from what's going on from staff at the pump station. And, and we kind of stepped in and, and gave him, this is what we're doing. We are seeing, we're watching the levels, and this is an official comment to him, but he's realizing we know what we're talking about. We told him, the waters are going up, they're not going down. And we're, he's basically made the assumption right there, I've got to go put my herd down. And uh, so that was upsetting. Um, and so it's those things that we're, okay, we're going to work harder. We, we don't want to lose anymore. That was, it took us toll. see that guy again? Uh, we haven't talked. I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen him in town. I just do haven't talked, but uh, we will. That story was produced by Jody Martinson along with Joan Weber from CBC's Audio Documentary Unit. It made me think about that time a year ago here in Vancouver when we were all watching what was happening and of course we were trying to cover it as journalists and trying to get our heads around how much tragedy was happening and in the months that followed that we talked to people who had been traumatized by what had happened to them by, to their animals to their livelihoods and it all just carries on and there is support out there for farmers but there's so much more to be done, and that's clear from what Jody talked about in her documentary. And that's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Daniel Piper, Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.